Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And Julia, our illustrious and fearless co-host, is not going to be with us on this episode today, but I am really excited about our guest that we have today, and we're going to be asking him a lot of questions about Congress and what it needs to do its job. So with no further delay here, I'd like to introduce to all of our listeners a dear friend of mine, a former colleague of mine, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and just man about town, incredible fisherman, uh, whiskey aficionado, uh, the list goes on and on and on. But Kevin Kosar, welcome to Politics in Question. Thank you, James. Thank you, Lee. So what? just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, where you do it, how you think about the world before we kind of jump into this question so that our uh, listeners can can get a better sense of you and, and understand the, the COSAR that I've come to know over the years. Yeah, so i a uh, resident scholar at American Enterprise Institute, a right-leaning think tank here in Washington, D.C. Been there since September 2020. Prior to that, spent six years at R Street Institute running their governance squad, trying to make Congress great again. And prior to that, I had 11 years working on Capitol Hill as a nonpartisan uh, analyst, researcher at the uh, Congressional Research Service. And uh, yeah, I mean, my basic proposition is that nobody is born understanding how to be a, a good lowercase d Democrat. We don't come out of the womb understanding how to uh, govern ourselves, it's something we all have to learn. And that is what I aim to do in this town is to help, you know, teach legislators, their staff, media, everybody about how do we govern ourselves. And you have a podcast that helps to do that too, right? You want to tell us a little bit about the podcast? Yeah, sure. It's a, it was launched a few months back. It's called Understanding Congress. And uh, the episodes, for the most part, focus on some spec, some aspect of this complicated beast that is Congress. So, for example, I did an episode with uh, Professor Matt Green of Catholic University on the subject of how does the con- how does the House of Representatives organize itself at the start of a new Congress? How does it pick its leader? Uh, I've got an episode that's coming out on how does Congress fund itself through the appropriations process. Some of the episodes also are going to be devoted to kind of classic big think books on Congress. And maybe one day we'll have you on there, James. Well, I'll tell you what I'd like to talk about. For anybody who's been inside the Senate office buildings in the Russell building, there's uh, the stairway, one of the stairways, it curves around. It's this gorgeous stairway, old marble steps. And as you go up, you ascend, you notice that on the left side of the stairway, the railing is wood. And on the right side, it's brass. And I would like to get to the bottom of this because it seems to me that, you know, if we are going to be a first rate power in this world, our stair rails need to match one another. And so if you ever want to tackle that question, I'm happy to to come on and let's let's figure it out. Let's get to the bottom of it. That's a novel theory of congressional dysfunction. Very. So, yeah, we'll we'll have to to see. uh, Maybe that's what's been at the heart of the problem all these years. Yeah, and um, that's that's a good point. But you know, what's 
One other thing I want to mention is a, a book that Kevin, you are a editor of, along with uh, Lee, um, is an editor of uh, Congress Overwhelmed the Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful read. Everybody should should go out and grab a copy. But uh, Kevin and Lee, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book, and then let's just jump into this and ask, you know, what does the stuff in this book, what do the chapters in this book, uh, tell us about what Congress needs to do its job? Sure, sure. Where to begin? Well, let me give a brief origin story. This book grew out of a conference that was hosted at New America, where we invited a bunch of super smart people who knew a lot about Congress to come and give white papers that looked at Congress through this framework of capacity. And uh, that conference itself kind of was built off of a survey that um, Lee and Tim LaPira and Alexander Hertel Fernandez and uh, Xander Furness, uh, amongst others, helped put together in field. We, we, we surveyed congressional staff, put them through, uh, put them through the ringer, asked them a lot of questions about their experiences on Capitol Hill. And um, Tim LaPira also got out there and did a lot of one on one interviews to add a great heap of qualitative data that just kind of help us understand as individuals who are working within this institution, the way the wheels turn and the challenges that they face. So the book grew out of that project and I'll pass the ball to Lee here so he can tell you a little bit about what's in it. Yeah. So, uh, the book is, there's, a uh, 17 chapters in the book that, you know, go talk about the kind of decline of capacity uh, and the various ways in which Congress is failing to do its job. And then, you know, look a, look a little bit at the prospects for reform. And uh, James, there's a, a chapter that you wrote as well. So, you know, it's it's kind of the, the, the most comprehensive book out there that looks at, you know, what Congress is supposed to do and what it's actually doing. And you know, it really, really brings together a diverse approach, uh, a diverse set of approaches on thinking about this question of congressional capacity, uh, which is a term that, that we often toss around. But this is the book that really kind of flushes out that concept. Well, let's let's start there then. What is Congress's job? Kevin, I mean, what is Congress supposed to do? When we say capacity or the capacity to do one's job, we assume implicit in that is this idea that there is a job to be done. Well, what is that job? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Any of us and anybody who's listening to this podcast and you've applied to take a position at a company or organization, uh, there's been uh, in the job ad a, a description of the job. And then when you actually get on board, you are given a position description about what you are supposed to be doing, what the expectations are. It doesn't quite work that way for a new member of Congress, nor a returning member of Congress. And at the institutional level, you know, that's that's a whole other question. What is Congress collectively supposed to do as opposed to what an individual member is supposed to do? You know, there's all sorts of places we can look for hints about what we expect of the institution and the individual member. 
you know, first place to take a look at is the Constitution. You know, there are any number of authorities that Congress as an institution has. And by implication, some of those collective responsibilities and authorities would, you know, trickle down to the individual member and presumably create some sort of imperative uh, on a member on what they're supposed to do, appropriate money to provide for the common defense, for example, see to it that they build post roads and post offices, that sort of stuff. But, you know, on the other hand, there's the demands of the people, interest groups. They all have expectations one way or another about what legislators should be spending their time on. No doubt there are other sources uh, for what the expected duties of members of Congress are. Uh, getting reelected, that's kind of built into the job. Campaigning, uh, raising money as part of that campaign, that's also part of the job too. There are many duties uh, that we expect of Congress. I think part of the reason that people tend to get down on Congress is that they have different expectations of what they should be spending their time on. What do you think about that, Lee? I want to broaden it, this, this question even more, which is to ask, like, why do we even have a Congress why not just, you know, elect one leader, one president to kind of run the show? I mean, isn't Congress just a place where there's endless squabbling and parochialism? And wouldn't it be better if we, we just had a, a single great leader? Of course, I, I don't actually believe that. But, you know, I think that's the, the way, you know, a growing number of people feel that they just, you know, want somebody who can just take action and all Congress does is is disagree and, and fight. So why do we even have a Congress? Why indeed, yes. Autocracy, maybe that is the most efficient way to get public policy problems solved. But Don't we love efficiency? Oh, most certainly we do. Yes, 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 yes. But as our as our as our friend James Walner likes to point out, we should not get overly focused on policy outputs, lest we reduce Congress to a, a factory that is bashing out widgets to meet consumer demand. When, in fact, we have to remember that Congress serves a greater function, which is to be a place where the great pluralism of America can meet and have debates about the common good and all sorts of other particulars. So what you're, what you're saying is, and, and I think this is important, is that actually uh, Congress is doing its job if there is uh, disagreement and conflict. That, that's the, the purpose of, of, of a legislature is to provide a forum where different perspectives can go up against each other. And it's a, a, a way in which we actually see representation happening. And so it's not just about solving pub public problems, although it's part of that, but it's also about how we solve public problems. And that is a, a, a crucial feature of a, of a healthy legislature. And, I, you know, I think we, you know, there's a lot of folks who are trying to measure the health of Congress and they're looking at bipartisanship or bills passed. And, you know, maybe we ought to think about it in a, a slightly different way. Does, does that jive with, with how you, you think about it? Yeah, absolutely. And we should remember that it's not as if problems are brute facts 
you know, like a rock outside or a tree. Problems are socially constructed. What you think is a problem, they may not think is a problem. And different types of problems lend themselves to solution by the executive branch and regulators. For example, problems that are of a really highly technical nature. You know, are we going to approve this vaccine for distribution to the country? You don't want a legislature trying to figure that out. You want people who are experts who are trying to decide the trade-off between the possible risks of side effects and et cetera, et cetera. Let them do that. Other problems like the immigration problem, what is it? What is the immigration problem? Well, that's going to require a lot of perspectives uh, to debate amongst themselves, to decide, is there a problem? What's the nature of the problem? Um, and then ultimately, hopefully, come to a decision of some sort. Or if we can't come to consensus, to admit we can't and to leave the problem an unsolved problem. A legislature is the place for tackling those sorts of things. It's the place where you should have conversations about the nature of an issue, whether it's worth addressing, how many resources we would consider putting to it, and whether we're not going to work on something else instead. I, no, I, I, this is really interesting because I, I, you know, I think there's a sense that Congress has kind of given up on its responsibilities. And and delegated too much to the executive branch, but you know I think I think what I what I hear you saying is that we ought to think about what are the issues that Congress should tackle and and should not tackle, and you know as an interesting perspective that maybe you know Congress shouldn't tackle everything, and maybe Congress is more of an institution that kind of decides what the problems and priorities are. And that that the role of Congress might not necessarily always be to solve every problem, but rather to frame and decide what the problems are. And that you know, I think there there's a a way in which we rush to what's the right solution before we actually define the problem. And I think anybody would who thinks about it would tell you that well, the the nature of the solution depends on the definition of the problem. And sometimes we run to the solution without properly defining the problem. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Oh, ab absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in my earlier life as a, as a graduate student and an early PhD um, recipient, I spent a lot of time on poverty policy and often associated with it, education policy. And, you know, look at poverty policy. During the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt's in the White House, there were an unbelievable number of government experiments to solve poverty. And then we had a whole slew of them in the late 60s and early 70s about how to solve poverty, and fix the poverty problem. And uh, guess what? The poor are still with us. And Throughout those episodes of reform and right up through today, there are still ongoing debates about who, 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 who is poor. What does it mean to be poor? One, at one point in time, poverty was like, well, yeah, you don't have enough food and nutrition. You're getting rickets. You don't have shoes. You know, it was very materialistic. 
Now poverty is increasingly conceptualized as about access to medical care and other sorts of things. And so the problem of poverty, just to pick one problem in society, is still not neatly defined, despite decades and decades of federal activity and debates on the very topic. And that's, um, that's not a sign that government has failed. It's a sign that, you know, poverty is complicated. Again, it's a socially constructed idea. Problems, again, are not trees or rocks that you find outside and say, aha, the edges of the tree are discrete. The edge of the rock is discrete. This is a rock and that other thing is a non-rock. You can't do that with things like poverty. You can't do that with things like justice or fairness or immigration problems or just about anything else. Well, and if you get to the subatomic level, you almost can't even do that with rocks and trees. What is a tree? What is a rock? But that's another podcast. Um, but this is, I think, as we kind of now ask, why can't Congress do its job? I think it, one of the reasons, I think, is because we don't think of it the right way. Kevin, earlier you mentioned a factory. I love talking about this idea of Congress as a factory. And when you have this view, which I think is pervasive in society today, you begin to focus on problems and solutions, number one, and then you focus on outcomes. And you you see members as like basically workers on a production line, and their job is to assemble a product according to a blueprint that has been designed elsewhere. There's an expertise there. It's And then politics becomes the application of expertise, not the adjudication of disagreement. But Congress and politics more broadly is, to borrow a phrase from uh, Derrida's, it's where you go to negotiate the non-negotiable. In a society where every citizen is both a ruler and ruled, you have to have a place where you can come together to make collective decisions. And I think this is a really important point. Congress is a place. That's what it is. It's a place. And it's a place where you're represented by the people you vote for. It's a place where lawmaking occurs. It's a place where actors, individuals participate in an activity. But increasingly, what we see is that they're not participating in that activity. They're not resolving their disagreements via negotiation and bargaining and compromise, right? They're deferring to the executive branch and to the judiciary. So, I mean, why, why is that? I mean, why can't Congress and why can't members of Congress do this job, participate in this activity, in this place? Why don't the voters increasingly expect their members to do this and instead kind of tolerate the uh, the kind of ongoing malaise, if you will? And you know, the last thing I'll say here is that it's very ironic to me that the moment we kind of conceptualize Congress as a factory, it's at its least productive point, I think, in its history. It's really, it's really stark if you think about it. Um, and, and so, but but why can't Congress, why can't members of Congress participate in this activity in a meaningful way? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, well, I, I guess I should loop back to kind of a facet of American culture before then talking about demands on Congress. American culture has a strong kind of anti-politics streak to it. You know, I could tell you when I was growing up in Ohio, you know, one of the rules that I was taught was don't don't discuss religion or politics. Why? Because it invites conflict and it could upset people and it could put people off. You know, ours is not a culture where we celebrate people who haggle. You know, we 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 much, you know, the idea of like going and dealing with a used car salesman and that back and forth, 
most Americans are utterly put off by that. That interpersonal exchange, that's give and take and negotiation and the games that get played and this, that, and the other. I think Americans culturally, for the most part, just dislike that, which means it's hard for them to dig Congress. I mean, we've had plenty of political science done on this about Americans and they're just, they don't like seeing the sausage made. It's just off-putting to them. They conceptually know it needs to be done, but they don't, they just don't like it. So there's, that's, a, that's a brute fact. It's there. The other thing I want to toggle over to is that last 120 years of our country, one huge trend is the growth of government and the growth in expectation that government do stuff. I mean, we're at a point where we have 180 federal agencies, all with slews of programs and initiatives and projects that they have to do. And I think when you have this much government, it's a dialogic relationship between the institutions and the people. Well, just to just to jump in real quick on this point too, I would add to that. If you think about just the past 15 years, for instance, and the development of the iPhone, the the strides that that medicine has made, like all of the stuff that's happening out in the world, there's this sense that we should be able to figure this out, right? That we should be able to solve the problem of conflict and all of these things and Congress and politics should work in a different way. But it's just, it's a different activity. And so, you know, as government's expanding into people's lives and touching people in more and more ways and good or bad, depending on your perspective, I think the expectation of people is that it should be like, you know, you're an app on your iPhone. You should just be able to figure it out. But that's a different kind of mindset than what politics, I think, ultimately is. Sure, sure. Something like 45 years ago, Edward C. Banfield, the great political scientist, sociologist, urbanologist, he wrote a paper called policy science as metaphysical madness. And what he was looking at was the fact that you had all these kind of graduate schools and programs of public policy popping up, and they were very much focused on quantitative methods and data gathering, and they were plopping out students who were kind of scientists within realms of social policy. And what he was trying to say was like, that's all well and good, but this is an inherently political realm that you people are entering in. And what you're doing is to some amount insane and at odds with that reality. Anyway, we'll get back to you know, the expectation is that, you know, you've got all this government, you've got programs for just about everything under the sun, whether it's fixing the roads or educating the kids or putting satellites in the sky so we have telecommunications, whatever it may be, people expect that stuff to work. They want that stuff to work. And I think increasingly they feel that the member of Congress's job is to basically serve as an ombudsman to the administrative state. Make sure my social security check is getting here on time, to use a dated example. Make sure that this border problem gets dealt with. Make sure that this thing gets dealt with. It, it's just a it's just a mentality. Um, and it's, you know, we expect members of Congress to do congressional oversight of the executive branch, right? You know, we want to know the money is being spent well and it's not being wasted. Well, that takes you down the road to legislator as manager, legislator as calculator of cost benefit, legislator as policy analyst, not legislator as political actor adjudicating competing wants. So uh, this is interesting. And, you know, I think what one of the things that uh, is, you know, you're, you're really highlighting is that we want our lawmakers to do an awful lot of different things. And it makes me wonder, this is 
totally out of the box idea, but maybe we ought to think about the different roles for you know. I mean, maybe like you know, there there we should split up Congress into uh, different roles that we ought to have district ombudsmen. Um, you know, that's one role, and maybe that should be one person. Maybe oversight should be, you know, one person who specializes in that. And maybe policy adjudication and debate of different perspectives should be a different person. This is totally crazy. But, you know, what if you had the states electing different people to just serve different roles so they could focus on those different roles rather than expecting our representatives and senators to do all of these things at once? And you know, that that the uh, particularly the policy debater, you know, that's that that's a that's one role, that's one version of representation that we're just so confused in what we expect representation to be that we can't think of anything other than that we're just dissatisfied because we're expecting our representatives and our Congress to do something that is impossible. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a great quote from one of the ancients, Marcus Aurelius or Seneca, I can't remember, to be everywhere is to be nowhere. And the average member of Congress is, you know, drinking from a fire hose. They're expected to wear so many hats. It's just, it's just crazy. And to a degree, what they've been doing is triaging, you know, so they, they set up district offices, obviously, that can help people with the kind of getting stuff from the executive branch, helping them file for grants or getting their benefits or, you know, dealing with bureaucracy in one way or another. So they've got people to do that. Um, You know, they rely on some of their DC-based staff, committee staff to kind of follow up on oversight type issues. They work with various third-party groups and fundraising, one of the things that they have to get done. And so, yeah, that's what they're kind of they're triaging. But, um, you know, absolutely. I mean, again, I go back to the job of a member of Congress has grown a lot more complicated thanks to the massive growth in government. You know, Congress collectively is expected to oversee 180 agencies, a four point five trillion dollar budget. That's pre-COVID. And to respond to, you know, stuff that the president is doing, who is kind of a giant monster of an institutional figure uh, that Congress has helped create. And meanwhile, they've been starving themselves of capacity. We know the number of staff, personal staff has not increased since like the 1980s in the House of Representatives. We know that the committee staff has gone down since the 1980s. We know that the number of people who work at the Congressional Research Service who can help them do oversight and train them up on complicated topics is down from 900 to 600. Over the last 40 years, GAO staffing was you know, cut like 25%. The Office of Technology Assessment, more nerds who could help Congress. Those 120 people lost their job in the 90s. And, you know, Congress's kind of intra-institutional processes for handling this crush of work and demands upon them, they lag. It's government, so of course it tends to lag reality. That's, what, that's the way government works. There are no competitors, so they don't have to up their game in competition with some other firm and worry about losing business. And there's, a, you know, there's just lots of institutional drift. Nobody is really in charge of making sure that, the, that either chamber is keeping up and is you know, modernizing. So yeah, 
Yeah, skyrocketing demands, increased complexity, lagging capacity. This is our Congress. So, well, let's let's use this to pivot then to you know, and you've I think alluded to a lot of it, but how do we how do we fix it? And I think implicit in your understanding of what the job is, and then how con- why can't Congress can't do that job. I think illuminates uh, some of the potential ways to go about reforming the institution or reforming how we think about the place. But how can we fix it? And what is this? You know, and you and Lee both have edited this fabulous volume, this collection of work on uh, different ways to think about Congress and the different kind of reform options. What are they? What, what's out there? Make us happy. Give us hope. <laughs> well, um, first, there has to be somebody who's actually given the job of reforming this place. I mean, it's the basic rule in life. If you want somebody to, something to get done, then it needs to be somebody's job to get it done. And, and maintaining the institution so that it can meet the demands of the day has really not been anybody's job. In the Senate, in theory, Senate Rules and Administration Committee should be doing this sort of stuff, but they've got other things they want to pay attention to, and they just they haven't done a whole lot on this count. In the House, you know, House Committee on Administration is supposed to pay attention to some of these things, but they are swamped with all sorts of mundane day-to-day stuff like, you know, clogged toilets in the Capitol, that sort of stuff that they end up having to deal with and vendor payments and things. That's no, you know, that's crowded out what they should be doing. So helpfully, the House created a few years ago the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, which at least is raising the conversation about the institution's backwardness and its various inadequacies. And they're plopping out lots of recommendations. They dropped out 97 recommendations last year, bipartisan recommendations to update the chamber. And um, there, 30 of those got adopted by the House and those are in the process of implementation. So that's good. Uh, and the committee is getting back to work right now. Uh, and they're no doubt are gonna come up with more recommendations and try to get those adopted by the House. Meanwhile, over in the Senate, Mm, not so much. Not a whole lot of reform activity going on over there, as far as I know, other than people being, you know, anchored on the discussion of the filibuster and what should be the breadth of coverage of the budget reconciliation process, which those are important things, but that's a very small aspect of institutional capacity. The other level at which this work is that, you know, we could talk about the material, which is a lot of capacity, but then there's the mental. What do you understand your job to be as a member of Congress? What is your duty as this constitutional actor? And that uh, that's just something that's going to take all of us. We're just going to, have to spend a lot of time banging on Congress and reminding them of their constitutional duties, the role they play in the separation of power system. And we're also, beyond beating them over the head and reminding them of these things, I think we are going to have to figure out how to make the incentives align so that members of Congress feel incentivized to behave as constitutional actors. Right now, we're kind of doing the, you know, eat your kale, eat your spinach, wagging our fingers at them. And meanwhile, they're saying all the incentives lie elsewhere. Why not go on TV? Why bother doing oversight or thinking, you know, seriously about public policy? It's easy to go on TV. I get rewarded. I can raise money. It helps for re-election. It makes me cool. It sets me up for a job after Congress, going to work for one of the major networks, et cetera, et cetera. We got to think about how the incentives can be realigned so that members of Congress are more likely 
to be interested in doing their their legislative duties. I mean, James Madison can't expect angels. Got to create the incentives. Yeah, that's an incredibly important point. And I want to take that even one step further back. It's not not just, you know, what the role of being a, a member of Congress is, but who is even attracted to run for Congress in the first place and you know, how they even get elected. I mean, I, I think running for Congress is can be kind of grueling. Uh, certainly serving as a member of Congress, you know, you're constantly shuttling back and forth between Washington, you know, you have to leave your family uh, for long stretches. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a, for a lot of people, it doesn't feel like a, a, a super appealing job. It requires an, an awful lot of fundraising. And, you know, the party leadership has tremendous power uh, over how things operate. So a, a, as a rank and file member, it's just not that that appealing for a lot of people, unless you're a partisan firebrand or, you know, somebody who, who wants to use it as a platform to, to go on TV. Uh, you know, so how do you think about who runs for Congress and how that affects the institution? And are there any ways we should be focusing our attention there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're obviously there are intra-institutional things that we could change. You know, the way that the leaders are choosing to run the chambers in this sort of very top-down way does undercut the incentives to be a workhorse in Congress. You know, years ago, when House Republicans adopted the rule that you could only serve as the chair of a committee for six years before you got booted off. I mean, what a bad rule. I mean, what incentive do you have to learn an issue area very closely if you're going to end up six years later having to ask for a waiver to retain your position? You know, there there are obvious things in the chambers that can be changed to improve the incentives, but yeah, the electoral connection is very real. I um. Funny enough, just the other day, got a copy of the book, Rejecting Compromise, Legislators' Fear of Primary Voters by Sarah Anderson, Daniel Butler, and Laurel Harbridge-Young. There is something very clearly there. Uh, when I talk with people in the House or even the Senate, where they have six years terms, fear of being primary is real. And this is something James and Elaine Kmark of Brookings wrote upon a year or two ago. Uh, primaries affect behavior within the chambers. And uh, I don't think they tend to affect it in a positive way. Well, let's get rid of primaries. Yeah. Let's move to move move to open primaries. No. Well that's no. a whole that's a whole nother podcast. A whole nother podcast. Uh, but yes, we uh it's an important question and uh I'm gonna be disciplined here and not take the bait and jump in. But um but you know I just wanna Kevin, I'm gonna give you the last word. You know, we're running short on time. But I, I wanted to thank you for coming on today, um, for helping us grapple with this problem. Um, for our listeners, the, the edited volume with both Kevin and, and Lee, our, our co-editors, along with Tim Lapira, is Congress overwhelmed the decline in congressional capacity and prospects for reform. It's a great read. Highly recommend it. But uh, Kevin, I'm going to give you the last word here on, uh, on, on all things Congress or, you know, to be honest, anything else, any nuggets of wisdom you want to leave us with? You know... The essence of Congress is it's a place where people have to get together with each other and 
be able to negotiate. That's the only way you can build a majority. And I would like to see us get to a place where members of Congress are here for longer stretches of time and are spending more time with one another negotiating because I think the chambers, both of them, have become kind of atomized where senators and representatives hardly know the people that they're dealing with. And I just don't know how you could possibly negotiate log roll and haggle if you don't have trust-based relationships. Well, there you have it. That's uh, that's a, some good wisdom in a nutshell. But um, thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours. Polarization is seemingly everywhere in today's politics. The simple act of taking up sides dominates our public discourse, and American democracy suffers as a result. A lot of Americans believe that fixing this problem requires big structural reforms to our political system that are not going to happen anytime soon. But in the meantime, Ashley Mildtight and Richard Davies are helping us address problems that we can solve in their podcast, Let's Find Common Ground. In it, they aim to identify solutions to problems in American public life, like the state of the environment, the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, and systemic racism. And they bring in guests like co-founder and chair of Black Lives Matter, Hawk Newsom, and journalists Peter Baker and Susan Glasser to help them in that effort. On a recent episode, Mel Tite and Davies interviewed two experienced Washington insiders, Betsy Wright-Hawkins and Tamara Luzato, about what Congress can teach us about bipartisanship. And they should know, Hawkins served as chief of staff for four Republican members of Congress over a 25-year period. Luzato served as Hillary Clinton's chief of staff in the Senate from 2001 to 2009. So if you want to be more informed about politics and to engage as a citizen, join Ashley Milne-Tite and Richard Davies for conversations like these by searching for Let's Find Common Ground on Apple, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.